Welcome to Hear Me, My Voice, My Story, a post-conviction victim services podcast. These podcasts were produced by the State of Hawaii Crime Victim Compensation Commission. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in these podcasts are those of the contributors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the Hawaii Department of Public Safety, the Hawaii Paroling Authority, the Crime Victim Compensation Commission, the State of Hawaii Department of the Attorney General, or the U.S. Department of Justice. Thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to Hear Me, the post-conviction victim services podcast produced by the Hawaii Crime Victim Compensation Commission in cooperation with the Hawaii Paroling Authority. The purpose of the Hear Me podcast is to bring awareness to justice professionals, advocates, victims, survivors, and communities about the opportunities for victim survivors to participate in post-conviction processes that affect their safety and their healing journey. Today, we're going to spend some time with a very special guest, really talking about the importance of identifying what victims' concerns are once they hit that post-conviction phase and the importance of collaborative work for those of us that do support victims during that post-conviction phase. Our guest today is Ms. Jerry Costa. She entered the victim services field in 1976 and has served in a variety of victim services capacities. She's also served as a state elected legislative official and a parole board chairperson. Jerry will tell us a little bit more about her history and her experience, but for the purposes of this podcast today, I think it's really important to truly acknowledge that our guest today has been a pioneer and a strong advocate for decades to make sure that we meet the needs and the concerns of victims post-conviction and that we have the resources available to continue to support them through that very important part of their journey. We are so excited to have you here with us today, Jerry. Can you tell us a little bit about your history and just why it is that post-conviction advocacy is so important to you? Thanks, Lydia. Services and rights have just really been a part of really my entire adult life because I started doing this work when I was a teenager. Um, before victims had any rights in the system. We worked a lot on the front end of just even getting victims' rights in statute. In the early 80s, I was able to participate on a Department of Justice project about crime victims and corrections, which was the first time that folks had really started talking about the back end of the system. It's been nice to see as come full circle all these years later to actually be providing more rights and services for victims in those post-conviction phases. So just a little bit about me. I was an executive director of a nonprofit agency working for crime victims. I have um, worked at the national, what was used to be the National Victim Center as an assistant director of education and training. I also came home and ran into Washington State and ran for public office. So served in the state legislature for four years and the Senate for four years. And then I, the Washington State Department of Corrections created the community victim liaison positions in their victim services program. And so I went into that program for a couple of years, and then the governor appointed me as the chair of the parole board in our state. So I served there for a few years. Um, And then I spent five years doing victim services for female inmates who were victims of staff sexual misconduct. And for the past seven years, I've been back doing uh, post-conviction victim service work uh, for our victim services program. Can we talk a little bit about why the concerns of victims change or how they change from that pre-conviction disposition phase to that post-conviction phase? You know, 
I think we'll find when we start talking later on about needs that there's a lot of similarities, but those concerns change because of the fact that at the front end of the system, there's a lot of more automation in terms of victims' rights. Victims have the right to be informed and notified. And so that that happens at the front end of the system more automatically. I'm not saying it happens 100% of the time, but it does happen more automatically. Whereas in most states, uh, not all, but in most states, you have to enroll to receive services post-conviction. So there's a little difference in terms of how you're going to get information. And victims don't know that. They don't know where to go or what to do. And, And oftentimes they will hear the judge say the sentence and the prosecutor will tell them, you'll get notified, but nobody tells them how that really happens. And so they're left out there on their own. So their concerns change because all of a sudden they don't really have someone advocating for them or providing them the tools and the resources for those next steps. So things kind of happen automatically and then all of a sudden disposition happens. And then all of a sudden there is this this flip that says if you want this information, you have to get it. I think nationally to support services change, don't they, Jerry, once there's been a disposition? Well, they do somewhat because, of course, you've got in prosecutors or DA offices, they're generally, depending on the size of county you're in, quite a few different advocates. So you have somebody who's working with you specifically. When you get to the post-conviction phase, um, oftentimes there could be one to two victim advocates in the post-conviction program that are there to help every victim. So that those support services service rules change in respect to availability, but they also change into respect to what they're providing or can provide. Because at the front end of the system, folks are really focused on assisting victims with what their concerns and needs are now. But at the back end of the system, it's really driven by what does the system do with this particular offender once they've been incarcerated? And what are the what's going to happen with that person in terms of how they're going to get out and where they're going to go? So a lot of the services that are provided are specific to that offender. Right. They're for the victim, but they're specific to the offender. You know, Hawaii has an amazing victim witness program in their prosecutor's office. And then oftentimes the offender can go to many different places. And so that warm handoff, how important that is to know where the victim can go to get additional information. Um, So, Jerry, I think that when we talk about post-conviction, too, and we talk about the concerns that victims have, is there there's some unique concerns that victims might have when the offender is a family member of the victim. Um, Once there's been a conviction, those family dynamics change and the victim may have um, some questions not just about their own safety and security, but their concerns might also be wrapped up in their economic security. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. I mean, when when you talk about victim concerns in that post-conviction phase, you have to kind of help them drill down. So they may be calling you and saying, I can't pay the mortgage. I don't know how I'm going to pay for this. And and you have to drill down to try to figure out, okay, where where is this coming from and why is this happening? Oh, 
the offender is actually a family member. The offender is was the breadwinner. So how that's going to be impacting the entire financial situation for that victim. Um, they're going to they could have concerns about what about child support? He's supposed to be paying child support. Now he's incarcerated. Um, where's he going to go when he gets out? Is, am I going to have to ha- let him live with me? Those are definitely some concerns that are raised that they're not really sure what their needs are around that at this point. They just concern what's going to happen when he gets out. Is he going to get any treatment while he's incarcerated? Is she going to be able to get some education? I mean, those are things, those are questions that they have that are um, might be even some people who's, who the offender is not related, they'll still have some of those questions, but we really do see that when it is a family member. Right. You know, Jerry, you and I have done some work together too. And I think about situations where we are, are, are talking about uh, sexual violence in families and there might be some questions. Why did you do this to me? Or how are we going to handle family functions moving forward? So it might not even be that I have concerns about my safety, but how is this going to like affect our family moving forward? The other thing that I, I, I think a lot about, Jerry, is when we have chemical dependency issues um, in families, even though people may be really angry or frustrated or concerned um, about their own safety, they also have this concern about is this person going to get the help that they need when they're incarcerated so when they get out uh, this behavior doesn't continue to happen and those are questions oftentimes that they don't know to have how to get the answers to that so these are some great examples of how general concerns can really change um, once we we have that conviction so I'm going to ask you, Jerry, in your experience, what are some of the universal concerns that victims or survivors experience post-conviction? Well, I think those universal concerns, um, in my experience, they've been things like, what happens next? For me, to the offender, for our family, what about, as we talked about earlier, what about the financial impact of the crime on my family and on myself? What about getting my restitution or what about how do I receive services? How do I get information about what's happening? How do I know when the offender gets out of prison? Some of those concerns really are the big picture of, um, and yet even the small details. So it's, you know, there's, there can be so many concerns about their safety and security about, um, where to go for financial assistance, about what kinds of services are available to them, um, and what happens if they move. They're just they're, There's really quite a wealth of concerns. Yeah, they really are. And I think, you know, it's really thinking about those big umbrella pieces, the safety stuff, right? I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know where to go to find out what's going to happen next. I don't have enough information on the laws or the processes. So where do I find that? It's kind of those really big questions and helping victims kind of get to, I don't know what I don't know is hard. And, and, and who does that for them? Right. And when does that happen? 
So how important do you think it is, Jerry, to identify victim concerns and how often should we do that? I think all too often the system really um, dictates the the timeline and maybe we should back that up a little bit, right? And say, should the victim do that? Should process to that. So what are some tips or tools that you have in guiding this discussion with victims um, that you've worked with? Well, you know, as an advocate, I think we, we always have to go back to our role is to really actively listen and to ask questions so they don't know what their concerns are. In order to help them identify those, we really need to actively listen. Tell me what um, has been happening for you the last few days. Tell me what happened when? Can you, are you comfortable sharing with me about this? And asking them, getting more clarity from them about what some of the things are that are coming up for them. An example is you have a mom who says, I I need to know how I'm going to pay my mortgage payment. And, and so you have to, as I said earlier, you have to back up and you have to say, well, let's talk a little bit about that. So tell me what is the concern with the mortgage payment? What's happened? Are you not going to be able to make this month's mortgage payment? What happened? What what are the specific needs? So helping them kind of drill down a little bit further, but it's really through active listening and asking those open-ended questions so that you can hear what the underlying concerns are in order to get to those needs. They don't know, like you said, they don't know what they don't know. And so our job really is to use our active listening skills, to use those open-ended questions and to really sometimes provide the terminology that they're not even sure about because, you know, let's face it, most people are not, they're not embedded in the criminal justice system. Um, They don't know what's going on. They don't know the terminology we use. They don't know the process. They learned it all by watching television and movies. And we know how realistic those are, right? So um, it's really about using our skills as advocates of active listening. Right. And I think too, Jerry, so often victims have so much shame in bringing forward their concerns. Right. I've, I've worked with, with victims who have said, I'm embarrassed to say, but I don't have enough money to be able to pay my rent this month. And I have said to that, to that victim or survivor, so what options do you have? Or can we start to explore what options you have? And they have said, well, my last person that I talked to asked if I could just take a, a an advance on my credit card. And the victim or survivor I was talking with started to cry and said, I don't have any credit cards or I don't have, I'm already way over on my cards and I have so much shame with that. And so because they have shame with that, they don't express their concern in a way that we can identify their needs then because they're, the, the shame has created this barrier for them to be able to actually share what's really going on. And so I think you absolutely hit the nail on the head when you just say, let's just listen. What is your greatest concern right now? You know, if you were to think thing that is the, the most stressful thing that is keeping you up or what kept you up last night to say, I don't know how I'm going to pay the rent. I'm already two months behind. That's where we're going to start. And it's not what options do you have? It's that's where we're going to start. Right. And, you know, and then creating a place that says, we don't care what happened up to today. We're just going to start with today. 
you know, because there's there's so much shame, I think, for so many victims and survivors in even being able to articulate their concerns because it's just this, it's this journey that they've been on. And for many, they feel responsible for where they're at in this moment. So if you think about somebody who was victimized in their own home, they may not, they may not want to go back to that home, whether it's a rental or, or owned, they may not want to go back to it. And right. so their concerns are getting to those concerns about where are they going to live, their safety, their security, their, the financial part of it, um, preparing for what's next, where can I go? Those are real concerns that are related to their victimization, but they're also related to what's going to happen with this person who's now been incarcerated. Right. So when we create, I, I, I think all too often we have become a society where it's a checklist, right? We're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to give the victim this brochure. We're going to go through this process. How important is it to actually create advocacy plans or around the unique concerns victims have or survivors have versus just to kind of go through our checklist? Well, I think it's really important to be specific and to recognize that while there may be universal concerns and shared needs um, that all victims have to some level, every victim is unique and every situation is unique. And so really working with that particular individual victim to determine what are those concerns and the, the check sheets our tools, I think a, a check sheet is a great tool, especially for folks after the sentencing to have a post-conviction checklist that says the victim knows this, I've informed them of this, I've provided this. That's a tool for the advocate, I think, to really help you remember all of the things that you need to make sure that you've shared with the victim so that they have that information and they know what's happening next or where to obtain new information. But creating that plan that is specific to the victim and their concerns and needs is really critical as well. So that they, we're not just trying to lump them all in and all the services and try to make them fit our services, that instead our services fit their needs and concerns. That's spot on. And I think too, you know, we have these checklists and Instead of going through the checklist with the victim or survivor, as the victim or survivor is talking about their concerns, taking a checklist that we have and saying, here's what the victim just shared that they're concerned about safety. And so you take a little note and then after they've kind of shared that, come back and say, I heard you talk about your concern. Like you don't know, you don't know where to go next if you have a question about whether or not he or she is doing chemical dependency programming. Right. So that was kind of a prediction and preparation. Um, what I heard you say is you're really concerned about what's going to happen if person who hurt you goes to prison and tries to contact you and you don't want that contact. I'm hearing you say that you're really concerned about your safety. So instead of saying we're going to walk through this checklist and you have to get information from me to support you based on this checklist, I'm going to listen to you and work through this checklist and respond based on what your hierarchy of concerns are. Absolutely. So 
Jerry, you and I have um, talked a lot about the difference between risk and threat. And in the uh, justice system and certainly in the post-conviction processes of our system, there is a lot of emphasis on an incarcerated person's actual risk to society. We have all kinds of risk assessments, right? Um, We do testing on people when they're incarcerated. We do all these assessments on them. And they, an an individual who is incarcerated may actually present a very low risk assessment, but to somebody who's been harmed, they might say, I just feel like I am at high risk. We talk a lot about Um, creating an advocacy plan around a victim's perception and the victim's concern around the threat to them. So we might have somebody who's not a threat at all or a risk at all to the general public, but they're a high risk or threat to their partner or to somebody that that, um, they've hurt before. So when we think about that, if a victim or survivor has not yet thought about the actual concern to them um, because now this person's incarcerated. What responsibility do we as advocates have to respond to what we might believe the, the, the risk is to that individual person? And that's my first question. And my second question is if the offender does not pose a high risk to the general population, Um, And maybe not even to the victim, but the victim believes that they do. What responsibility do we have to create a safety plan for that victim um, based on their concern? Right. So that's two different questions. So let's start with the first one. So the the offender is um, um, not a risk to the general population, but probably a risk to one person. How do we create that safety plan for that victim? How do we respond to that? Well, I think this actually goes to both of your questions, which is we have to recognize that that victim's perception is based on their experience. And Mm -hmm. we have not had that experience, right? right? So we must take their concern very serious. And we also, I believe, have a responsibility to help them understand that there may be safety concerns or risk for them that they haven't thought of. Um, Based on our knowledge and experience in working with these types of cases. So I think it's very important for us to first always acknowledge that their perception is based on their experience Mm -hmm. and that they know more about that particular offender, whether they knew the offender or not, they know more at this given point than we do because of their experience with that person. And it may appear on paper that this offender is you know, it was a random, you you might call it random, a random crime. And the offender probably would not go after that particular individual again. But that offender told that victim they were going to die if they told anyone. If you had someone tell you that, who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe that the person who told you they're going to kill you is going to kill you? Or are you going to believe the person on the other end of the line that says, ah, oh, he won't do that? Yeah. And I think too, you know, we have to create 
a response and a support based on the victim's perception and the victim's need to feel safe. Right. And, and instead of what we believe, I mean, I'm all about using research as we're making decisions for offenders, but I think we have to listen to the victim's concerns as we create a support um, plan for the victim and advocacy plan for the victim. Um, Cause it's their life. It's, it, it is. They're the ones who have been affected. So, and they have to make plans around yeah. what's going to happen next. And so they need to, they need sometimes assistance with identifying what are those threats and risks because, you know, they may not even be thinking about, oh, I'm still driving the same car that that person mm-hmm. followed me home in. Um, right. That may not have... It, even come to their mind and but maybe it is at the forefront of their mind so those are things yeah. we have to respond to is what what are their safety concerns what are their fears what is their has their experience been but also what we know overall about how to mitigate that risk how to reduce that threat, how to help them feel safer so that it's not just their physical safety, but it's a safer mind, right? So that they feel safer emotionally as well. Right. If I think about cases like criminal vehicular homicide or burglary or some of these cases that are maybe less um, personal from the standpoint of the the victim and the survivor or the victim or survivor did not know the offender or have a relationship with the offender. Many times what we hear from victims is I just don't want somebody else to have to experience this. Um, I'm, I'm curious to hear from you. Don't you think that we have an opportunity to utilize victims' concerns in those situations as well to um, make decisions around advocacy so that we can make, they want to make a difference I've heard from victims, I just want to make a difference for um, people moving forward so they don't have to experience this. Have you had that as well? Absolutely. And I think it kind of takes a couple of different tacks. One of them is that they want to know that their their participation in the system may have helped to prevent someone else from being victimized. Right. Uh, that, that helps them feel better about Sub, subjecting themselves to what they've had to go through right. with the system right. itself. Right. Um, but it's also that they do once, once they get to a point where they feel like they are ready to give back, there are folks who really do want to do that. They want to be able to step up and assist other people, um, or at least just be a listening ear or somebody that that um, has been through something similar so that victims, other victims don't know that they're not alone and they did not, they're not the only ones who experienced something like this. Right. Right. So one thing that Hawaii is focused on is this concept that we've talked a lot about, and that's that warm handoff. When we think about that, we always say that the the beginning of a victim's healing journey really is that first connection that they have to law enforcement or to advocacy early, early on. And that post-conviction healing starts at that point, um, because when victims are very carefully cared for, 
and and thoughtfully hand it off to the next person who can guide them and and advocate for them and with them how important that is early on so we know that advocacy within police departments advocacy within community programs before case is even charged right sometimes before somebody's even uh, an offender's even charged um all the way through uh, the victim witness process through whatever advocacy is available during the incarceration process through the parole decision process through the community supervision process as we touched on earlier that warm hand up is so important how do we do that and how important is that at the very end of this how important are those those advocates early on in in letting victims know who's available, but what their concerns might be and kind of validating that early on? It's really important for everyone within the system um, from the beginning through the end to acknowledge and validate that victims do have concerns and needs and try to assist them with getting some clarity on what those are, as well as what resources are available. And so when it comes to that warm handoff, it's more than just saying, okay, your case is done. The Department of Corrections um, has a notification program and there's this other program you can enroll in. And okay, thank you. I hope that you heal. (laughs) It's It's picking up the phone sometimes and saying, you know, I have this um, colleague who works in the uh, Department of Corrections as a victim service provider, and I'd like to connect you with them so that they can answer your questions about this next phase. Or at least um, if you've got some kind of a post-conviction brochure that you don't just hand it to the victim, but you actually spend some time with them going over, here's the resources and the services they provide. Here's how you get those services. And if you have time, even just going online and enrolling them in the program with them sitting right there. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes we know at the that after the the sentence comes down, there's so much going on and swirling around in a victim's brain and in their lives that they a lot of the paperwork and the things that they're told, just they're not retained. And so I know you probably experienced this too, Lydia, where, you know, years down the road, this offender is getting out and all of a sudden victims are calling you and saying, nobody told me. (laughs) I didn't know I had to enroll in this program. And so somebody may or may not have told them. But again, at that end of that process of the prosecution and the conviction and the sentencing, there's so much going on that they're oftentimes not going to retain that information, even if it's in writing. So doing as much as you can to provide factual information, to do a warm handoff to whoever is covering post-conviction services in the area where the victim is going to be residing and thinking of ways that you can do that, whether it's sending a joint email to connect them together or picking up the phone and connecting them, but um, just making sure that there is some way that victims are getting the information and we're not just, again, expecting them to remember what we told them or to read all of the papers that we just gave them. Right. No, I think you're 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 spot on. And I know that just uh, yesterday I had a conversation with somebody and I said, here's what we're going to do on my little phone. You can add a second person. So before I hang this phone up with you, 
right before we end this call, I'm going to add a call and I'm going to connect you with the person at Crime Victim Comp. And because the victim's concern was, how am I going to pay for this medical bill? And so I'm like, okay, you know what? We're just going to add a call. So, and we're the TikTok generation right now. So I'm, I'm, absolutely about like, how do we do this? Cause I'm an old person. So I'm like, show me how to add a call. So we're going to add a call and you know, it's kind of like phone a friend. I'm like, we're going to phone a friend. We're going to do crime victim comp. Let's add the call right now. And I've got this person on my speed dial and we're going to do that. And then the, if the victim or survivor says, I don't know how, who to talk to if they try to contact me from prison. I might exactly not know who that person is right now either, but you know what? We're going to figure that out together. So are you okay if we start to make some phone calls together on this? And while you're talking to that victim, say, what's your greatest concern right now? And they say this, you just add that person into the call and it's that warm hand up and you're now connected. And then you in your predisposition or your pre-conviction advocacy place can kind of pull out. And now you've kind of done that, done that warm handoff. So Jerry, is there anything else that you'd like to share with listeners as we kind of wrap this conversation up around um, how we support victims or survivors and just kind of identifying what their concerns are? I I would just remind folks that our major role is to really listen, to understand so that we can appreciate what someone's concerns are, what they've been through, but to also know that we may be the only supportive person that they've talked to. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so... Uh, re- always remembering that all sometimes folks come to us very angry. Um, they may have, again, everybody else may not have listened to them. And so if you can provide that listening ear, that um, validation about their experiences and their concerns, help them define those needs and concerns um, and really get some clarity on them and provide them with the information and the resources and the prediction and the preparation they're going to need. That's key. And so, and remember that we all work together. So it's that continuum. It's not this part of the system versus that part of the system. It's not those silos. We need, we need to have that connection and help people make that connection all the way through the process. Now, I, I, I couldn't agree more. What they're counting on is that we on the same side to support them and that they might not even know what their concerns are. Um, but we're going to help create the pathway for them to identify those concerns. And then we're going to create um, an opportunity for them to identify what their needs are. So thank you so much, Jerry. I'm so grateful for the time that we spent together today. Thank you, Lydia. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Remember, the goal of this podcast is to both inform and provide an opportunity for justice professionals, advocates, victims, and survivors to have a voice. So please consider bringing your voice, ideas, experiences, or stories to us so we can include you. If you have a question about something you heard today or an idea for a future episode, or if you have an idea for a guest that you'd like to suggest or would like to be a guest yourself, please contact us at post postconvictionadvocate at hawaii.gov or at 808-358-8538. Remember, we would love to hear from you. And as Don Martin says, we rise by lifting others. You do that every single day. And we thank you.